Hello again, and welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things nuclear, with an emphasis on empowering we the people to an activist response. My name is Libby Halevi, and the reason that I do these podcasts is that I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there. And this program is my citizen activist response in the wake of Fukushima to get information out that isn't finding its way through mainstream media channels. Today, I'm very pleased that we're going to be talking with Michael Marriott, the Executive Director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, that's NIRS.org. Michael is more than, has more than 30 years of activism in the anti-nuclear arena with serious national creds and an important perspective to share with all of us. That will be coming up in about 10 minutes. Today is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2011, day 144 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th. And here is the latest nuclear news. It's interesting that uh, in... Um, that the government, okay, let's go to this part. The government in Japan has said in the past week that radiation levels around the Fukushima Daiichi plant, which is uh, 220 kilometers from Tokyo, has fallen to, quote, unquote, two millionths off the peak recorded on March 15th, right after the accident. It's two millionths of what it was, according to the Japanese government, which is very interesting because as of today, August 2nd, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, says radiation levels have reached at least 10 sieverts per hour near Fukushima's number one and number two reactors. These radiation levels are more than double the previous record high that was reached in early June at the reactors, and these are fatal levels of radiation. In an analysis that comes out of Australia, Peter Burns, the former executive officer of the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, says, quote, the levels reported of 10 sieverts per hour are very high levels, and it's going to be very difficult to manage workers going into those areas and doing operations. To put the 10 sieverts into context, he said, 10 sieverts is actually a lethal dose of radiation. So a person can't be exposed for more than a few minutes at those levels. It means you're going to be directly exposed to fuel rods in the reactors or the spent fuel ponds, which means there's very little shielding going on. This is as regards the men, and I don't believe there are women, but the men who are actually working in the reactor. So this is record high radiation at the same time that the Japanese government is saying that, oh, it's, it, it's down to just two millionths of what it had been before. Not exactly accurate. Uh, Dr. Helen Caldicott posted on one of her sites, and what she said was, when TEPCO makes an announcement like this, how is it possible to say the accident is over? So much PR money has been invested in saying everything is fine now, it's all under control. These readings are the highest since the beginning of the accident. They are also, this is really a key piece for us to understand, they are also the highest the monitoring equipment will measure. There is no guarantee that the levels, meaning the levels of radiation released, were not higher as there is no way to measure above this level. We need to question why the Japanese government is still saying that radiation levels have fallen to two millionths of the levels of March. In face of these new figures from TEPCO, this is clearly untrue. And if these levels of radiation are being released, where is the radiation going? 
And here's another question from her. Why aren't we still actively monitoring? And as far as the public is concerned, there really is no government monitoring of the levels of radiation from Fukushima or in our own countries um, that exist anywhere. Uh, there are no governments monitoring. Germany publicly announced that they were going to end their monitoring as of August 1st. And uh, the FDA is cutting down their monitoring of food safety to a mere fraction of what has been monitored in the past. They're actually going to move into testing food only quarterly, meaning once every three months, which is insane. Yet it is known that the United States government, for example, has high-flying, high-altitude planes that are capable of measuring radiation from the skies any place on Earth. So I believe it is naive to think that there is no monitoring at all going on. However, I would suspect that perhaps what's coming out from this monitoring is not information that people in power want to have out there for fear of panicking the population. I can't prove this. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who's looking at this and going, how can this make sense? Because it doesn't make sense. Um, unless you factor in some really scary stuff. But we don't know how scary because we can't get the numbers. Here's some more from Peter Burns from uh, the Australian uh, Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, which sounds like it's actually doing the job that it promises there. Uh, he says that in addition to the damage to the reactors, those working on the reactor now have to contend with contaminated waste generated by the cleanup operation. He says, there have been reports that there's a huge problem of a huge inventory of contaminated materials, not only water, but other materials that have been used in the cleanup. Now, obviously, these have to be contained by some mechanism and then removed to various storage sites so they can be properly managed over what will be decades, to which I add, if not centuries or millennia. Yet, there is no system currently in place to do that. The Japanese government, on another front, has suspended all beef cattle shipments from Iwate Prefecture, which is north of the Fukushima reactor site. This is now the third prefecture to be slapped with a ban due to contamination fears. Uh, a spokesperson for Iwate Prefecture's agricultural department says he was stunned to learn that the contamination was found that far north. And this is a quote from him. The Wate Prefecture is 200 to 300 kilometers, meaning mm, about 200-ish miles, from the nuclear plant, which has caused the beef to be contaminated. We didn't even consider that the explosion would have affected us being so far away. I'm very surprised, he said. Yet it's been proven that radiation from uh, sites does not go out in concentric circles. It's not like ripples in a pond going out. It depends on the way the wind is blowing. It depends on the weather. Rain brings radiation down into the soil and raises the radiation levels. And that gets into the grass. That gets into the groundwater. The cattle eat it or they ate the uh, contaminated rice hay or rice straw um, that was stored outside and collected radiation. And you've got irradiated beef. So that's um, the third prefecture, and suspicions are that there will be a fourth announced before too long. Now, Professor, Professor Katsuhiko Kodama is the head of the Radioisotope Center at the University of Tokyo. They've been studying radioisotopes in connection with uh, various health treatments, and they've been doing this for decades. 
On July 27th, he appeared as a witness to give testimony to the Committee of Welfare and Labor in Japan's lower house in the, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, it looks like the word diet, I believe it's pronounced diet, something like that. I will find out before next time. He reports that at that point, there is no definite report from TEPCO or the Japanese government as to exactly how much radioactive material has been released from Fukushima. So using our knowledge base at the Radioisotope Center, we calculated. Based on the thermal output, meaning the thermal output from Fukushima, it is 29.6 times the amount released by the nuclear bomb dropped on Hiroshima. In uranium equivalent, it is 20 Hiroshima bombs. That's what's been released thus far. He goes on. What is more frightening is that whereas the radiation from a nuclear bomb will decrease to one thousandth in one year, the radiation from a nuclear power plant will only decrease one-tenth. In other words, we should recognize from the start that just like Chernobyl, Fukushima 1 nuke plant has released radioactive materials equivalent in the amount to tens of nuclear bombs. And the resulting contamination is far worse than the contamination by a nuclear bomb. At one point in his presentation, Professor Kadama literally shouted at the politicians in the committee, what the hell are you doing? And I would say that's a good question for all of us to be asking these days. Uh, Michael, are you on the line? I am. Hello. Wonderful. Well, we have a very special interview today. Uh, Michael Marriott is the executive director and chief spokesperson for NIRS, which is the Nuclear Information and Resource Service found online at nirs.org. He has led the organization for 20 years, making numerous TV appearances, widely quoted in the press, and he has testified in the United States Senate and before the U.S. House of Representatives on nuclear issues. Uh, NIRS was founded in 1978 to be the National Information and Networking Center for Citizens and Environmental Activists concerned about nuclear power, radioactive waste, radiation, and sustainable energy issues. Michael, thank you so much for being here with the people of Nuclear Hot Seat today. Oh, happy to be here. Terrific. Uh, I'm going to show my age, and it's actually up to 26 years now. At near. 26 years. Well, you need to update your website because that's where I got the information. <laughs> <laughs> Go over to WordPress, then you can do it yourself. Well, it's Michael, a constant struggle. Pardon? It's a constant struggle to update the website because there's so much on it. Right, and that's one of the things I'm going to point out is the kind of resources that you do provide. But first, let's get some orientation. And there are so many nuclear anti-nuclear organizations around the country. Um, I've just been waking up since Fukushima. I was at Three Mile Island when it happened, and basically the post-traumatic stress and everything, I paid no attention to these issues until Fukushima, and suddenly I'm back in the mix. And with so many different organizations around the country, each seems to have a role to play. So what do you see as the unique or the central positioning of NIRS? Well, we were uh, actually established from the grassroots anti-nuclear movement. Uh, we were created to be the networking and information center uh, for what was then, back in the late 70s, uh, and really remains today a, a very decentralized uh, grassroots movement against nuclear power and for safe, clean energy. So we sort of uh, help coordinate all the different groups out there. Uh, we get them. We, we sort of serve as their Washington office, if you will. We get the information from the 
uh, various agencies in Washington, uh, from Congress, from the White House, get the information out to people uh, across the country, help them understand it, and help them use it. I've noticed that on your site you do have a number of uh, fact sheets posted, which are very important for us to understand. What are some of the areas that you cover in to let people know what's on the site? Well, we cover basically anything and everything related to commercial nuclear power, uh, radioactive waste, and radiation issues, uh, and some general, more general sustainable energy issues. Uh, so if you look on our website, you'll find uh, sections devoted to nuclear power and climate, uh, to alternatives to nuclear power, uh, to a whole bevy of reactor issues ranging from the very technical to the general. Uh, similarly, uh, for radioactive waste issues, uh, high-level waste, low-level waste, deregulated waste, uh, just the, the whole gamut of issues you can imagine. Uh, we have a very large section on radiation filled with a lot of technical papers. Uh, the, the, sort of, the, the fact sheets sort of serve as the introduction to the issues, and then you can delve more uh, deeply into the site and get all the source material. What, if anything, has changed for NIRS and the National Anti-Nuclear Movement since Fukushima? Well, I think that the main thing that has changed is public awareness. Uh, the, you know, much like you were just describing yourself, uh, you know, the public has not been as concerned with nuclear issues uh, in recent years as certainly we thought they should be. Uh, and the nuclear industry has spent uh, an enormous amount of money over the last 10, 12 years, uh, more than $650 million. Really, that much? Lobbying, yeah, just on lobbying and uh, political contributions. Uh, it doesn't include, and that doesn't include, you know, the individual utility spending and that kind of thing. And, and they've been spending all this money uh, to make the case for a you know, nuclear renaissance, if you will, in, in this country to be able to build new reactors and to try to convince people, especially politicians, that nuclear power uh, can be an answer to climate change uh, and thereby you know, sort of give themselves an in uh, to begin construction of new reactors. And they've been very effective at it. Uh, the public opinion pre-Fukushima uh, was you know, pretty divided, but maybe somewhat you know, on nuclear power side. Uh, and, and certainly congressional opinion uh, was and remains very strongly pro-nuclear. But the American public, uh, you know, having seen nuclear reactors explode across their television screens, uh, have become much more skeptical of the technology, uh, much more resistant to new reactors being built in this country, uh, and even more resistant to having uh, taxpayers have a role in funding new nuclear power projects. Right. I, I One of the reports that I read, which I think was the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, um, was it, it broke down the funding that is given to nuclear power plants and the fact that it is a financially untenable model without taxpayer subsidy. Well, right. And, and this has been the case for some time, and it's the other reason why the industry itself has had to spend so much money on lobbying. Wall Street 
is not interested in using its own money to fund nuclear power plants. Uh, e even back in you know, 2006, 2007, uh, when bankers would lend just about anybody who could walk through the door any amount of money they wanted for anything, uh, they wouldn't lend for nuclear power plants. And in fact, uh, eight of the largest Wall Street firms at the time, uh, some of which no longer exist, but uh, eight of them signed a letter to the Department of Energy and to Congress saying that uh, unless the taxpayers would guarantee these loans, they would not make loans for reactor construction. Uh, and so what came out of that was uh, from Congress, not the understanding that, well, maybe this would be a stupid thing to get into then if, if you know, even Wall Street isn't interested. Uh, instead, the Bush administration got through a program uh, to have taxpayers guarantee uh, loans to private utilities to build nuclear reactors. Uh, that was funded initially at $18.5 billion, hmm. uh, and, and as it turned out, they weren't just loan guarantees the way the program was set up. They were actual loans of taxpayer money. Uh, so we fronted the money for all of this. Well, uh, you jump in ahead a little bit because uh, so far only one loan guarantee has been granted. Uh, that's for two reactors in Georgia. But... Uh, you know, those reactors don't have a license to build yet, so the, the loan actually hasn't been given to them yet. Ah. Uh, they, they can't get a loan until they get a license. Uh, and uh, while there were a quite a few projects in line uh, that applied for this money, in fact, the total amount of money that was applied for was up to uh, $122 billion over uh, some 20 projects, Several of those have already been canceled. Uh, others are in big trouble. And uh, the administration, uh, the Obama administration now, has actually been unable to uh, give out e even any more of these conditional loan guarantees. Uh, so, so far, there's only this one. Uh, we've beat back several efforts in Congress uh, since 2009 to increase the amount of money uh, for this program from 18.5 to $50 billion. Uh, President Obama last year wanted uh, a $36 billion increase. Uh, he didn't get it. He's tried again this year, uh, but I think the, uh, the deficit deals have probably scuttled that for the time being. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, we have a situation where these reactors are not going to get built without taxpayer support, and there's not much uh, support available to give them. And meanwhile, the public, if you look at the public opinion polls, 75% uh, of the American people oppose taxpayer loans for new nuclear reactors. Now, here's what's interesting. I haven't been part of the you know, nuclear activist mainstream, so I'm in touch with, I think, a more, quote-unquote, normal population. And from my perspective here, even in the wake of Fukushima, it is shocking to me how much information seems not to be getting out, that the activist perspective is not showing up with any regularity in mainstream media, 
and that even reporting on Fukushima and the problems that were occurring with Fort Calhoun and and many other places just doesn't seem to be out there. So most people uh, who I have been dealing with just on a day-to-day basis, when I ask them, they either think Fukushima is over or that nothing's really going on because for them there's dead silence. Have, have you had any perspective at all or do you have any perspective on why the media would be that um, that ignorant or that silent about this? Well, you know, the, the media jumps from one topic to another, uh, whatever the topic of the day is. If you remember last year, we had the BP oil spill uh, that occurred in April and uh, <clears throat> was not shut down until late summer. And, uh, you know, the media... You know, after a few weeks, the media largely ignored it, and we're seeing the same thing uh, repeat here. I mean, there was obviously a lot of media coverage uh, when Fukushima happened. I, I saw one poll that found that uh, 95% of the people in the world knew about Fukushima and knew what had happened there, which is uh, just an astonishing amount of uh, astonishing number. But uh, you know, the media gets tired of the story, and there's always another story to come along. And uh, you know, there's the debt ceiling, or, or there's you know Britney Spears' latest. Thing, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, the media is not able to do a good job of covering a long-running story like this. Uh, and you know, Fukushima is an accident that's continuing. Uh, it's going to continue for. Uh, sometimes radiation is going to be released for you know the next several months, and uh, you know it's much lower levels than it than it was uh, initially, obviously, but it's still being released, and the Japanese government is going to have to you know come to grips with this and come to grips with the fact that uh, there are now zones of Japan that are uninhabitable and will remain so for. Uh, you know, a, a, any kind of notion of the foreseeable future, uh, probably centuries, and uh, you know, it's an accident that's just going to be continuing, uh, and the media is not set up very well to cover that. Uh, what are you doing? Has there been any movement into social media? Uh, where we could plug into a Facebook or a Twitter or, or some way like that to get ongoing information from NIRS? Well, we have actually three Facebook pages. Uh, we have a, uh, a cause page, a friend page, and a like page. Uh, I don't know how to describe that, <laughs> but uh, we have three of them, and we do update on those uh, daily. Uh, we also have a Twitter uh, account that we use daily. Uh, I think it's at NIRSNET, N-I-R-S-N-E-T. Say, say that again so that we have that. It's at? At NIRSNET, N-I-R-S-N-E-T. Okay, so that's the Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, for people who want their news straight, we have uh, an email alert list. Uh, which you can sign up for on our website, and we uh, send out alerts to people, uh, oh, probably uh, four to six times a month or so. And and these are almost always action alerts. We we tell people uh, when there are things 
happening that they might want to know about, and we give them an avenue uh, so that they can participate. Uh, just as an example, the, in the House of Representatives, the, uh, a number of Republican Congress members are trying to uh, overturn an Interior Department decision of a couple months ago and uh, encourage the mining of uranium at the Grand Canyon. Oh my gosh! Oh no! We are uh, we are working hard to stop that. Uh, it, it, it was a, a hard job to get the Interior Department to agree to put uh, a 20-year moratorium on this, uh, as they finally agreed to do. It took a lot of public pressure, but the public pressure worked. Um, now we've got to put that public pressure on, on Congress so that they don't approve this nonsensical idea. Uh, and, and so, you know, that was one of our recent alerts, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, we put out as events warrant. Well, I'm certainly going to sign up for your um, uh, action alerts so that I can share them through Nuclear Hot Seat and also through my other accounts as well. Uh, where is, and by the way, we always encourage an activist response through this program. Uh, where is NIRS putting its attention now? Is there a specific next step that you have conceptualized or that you are working towards that you can let us know about? Well, there's a, a few different things. Uh, one is uh, the General Electric Mark I reactors in the U.S., which are the clones of Fukushima. We have uh, 23 of them operating in this country now, uh, and we are working with other groups to, uh, at, both at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission level and at other levels, to uh, close these early, uh, as in sooner rather than later. Uh, doing our best to, to force those issues. Uh, we're going to be, uh, over the next, oh, I'd say six weeks, we're going to be developing some new uh, campaigns around emergency evacuation planning because uh, in the U.S., the emergency evacuation zones are uh, basically a 10-mile radius around each <laughs> reactor. Uh, and yet at Fukushima, we had the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, for good reason, advising Americans within 50 miles of Fukushima to evacuate. Uh, so there's a disconnect there. So, you know, I don't think it's, we can say that uh, you know, 10 miles is good enough in the U.S., but you know, when we're in Japan, it's going to be 50. Uh, it may, you know, may not be that we need a planning zone of 50 miles, but we certainly need something much larger than we have now. And as uh, the Associated Press noted in, in a recent uh, series, recent investigation they did, the populations around the nuclear reactors, you know, most of the reactors in the U.S. are you know, 30 years old or older, uh, the populations around these reactors have gotten much, much larger uh, at most of them than they were when these things were first built. Uh, and it's not clear that the emergency plans have you know, really taken into account uh, you know, these kinds of changes uh, in the area and mm -hmm. was able to uh, implement evacuation plans. So that's something we'll be working on. Uh, we're working. We're working on uh, radioactive waste issues. The 
Department of Energy's uh, Blue Ribbon Commission that is re-examining radioactive waste policy. Just came out with some recommendations this last week, uh, and we'll be we've been coordinating grassroots response to this commission uh, for the last 18 months or so, and we'll be working on uh, responses to these recommendations. So there's a, a whole variety of things, but you know what our goal is. Uh, to build a nuclear-free, carbon-free energy future. And, and so everything we do is sort of with that ultimate goal in mind. Wow, that's quite an agenda. I'm wondering if any of the uh, listeners on the podcast would like to ask Michael a question. Okay, everyone's lurking today. Everyone's gotten shy on us. I I have a question. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Um I had heard that one of the main donors in the Obama campaign was pro-nuclear industry. Can you confirm that? Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure there's more than one, uh, but the one you're referring to is John Rowe, who is the chairman of the Exelon Corporation, uh, which is the nation's largest nuclear utility, uh, and they're based in Chicago. Uh, and they own the they own uh, Commonwealth Edison, which is the you know, the main Illinois utility, and uh, the the Illinois connection. That they obviously uh, know each other, and John Rowe also is friends with uh, you know some of Obama's closest advisors, like uh, David Axelrod and uh, Rahm Emanuel, who uh, is now mayor of Chicago, and. Uh, Roe was. Uh, I've seen him. I've seen him referred to a few different ways, but he clearly was among the top bundlers of campaign money to Obama, uh, if not the top bundler. Uh, I see. Roe obviously is a, you know, is pro nuclear. Uh, you know, being the CEO of the nation's largest nuclear utility. But he's actually not as, uh, what's the word I'd use here, he's not as dogmatic as some of his colleagues. Uh, he actually, uh, earlier this year, in fact it was the week before Fukushima, he gave a speech here in Washington in which he said uh, the government, the Congress should not increase the loan guarantee program for new reactors. He said this wasn't a good time to do that, it was a waste of money and uh, and Exelon has pretty much committed itself to not building new reactors for the foreseeable future. Well, that's uh, good. That doesn't, that's yeah, it doesn't necessarily make him a good guy, uh, but you know, compared to some of the other utility execs, uh, yeah, I guess he has a, a somewhat more open mind. Mm -hmm. I have another question. I heard a man, I forgot his name, but he was speaking out against nuclear power, and he was talking about the multitude of old reactors we have in this country, and he said with when they renew the leases for 40 years, 40-year leases, he said it's like driving a 60-year-old car 80 miles an hour down the highway. Something's got to give, and it's just a matter of time before one of these reactors does melt down in this country, and he felt that it was the most serious crisis facing the United States? Uh, well, I, I certainly 
agree with his assessment of the relicensing process and the fact that, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the U.S. reactors are uh, almost all 20 years old, at least, and most of them are much older than that. Uh, the relicensing process is um, a joke. Uh, it's basically a, a rubber stamp. Uh, the utility applies for the license, and the NRC grants it. Um, it's very difficult. We, we have, my group has participated in some of the legal battles uh, against relicensing of uh, specific reactors, and it's a very, very difficult process to do. And, and this is what I think gets most people, issues that affect more than one reactor, for example, a design deficiency that exists over a class of reactors are not allowed to be brought up in the relicensing process. So as I said earlier, we have 23 of these General Electric Mark I reactors operating in the U.S. Uh, they are all over 30 years old. Uh, but most of them already have received licenses to run another 20 years, and in not one of the cases was the basic design deficiency of these GE Mark I reactors looked at, despite the fact that for 40 years now, top safety officials at what was then the Atomic Energy Commission and then the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and we, by the way, we have the memos from these people up on our website, the original memos from 40 years ago. These officials were warning that <coughs> under accident conditions, these reactors would explode. Oh, uh, gosh. But in the relicensing process, we're not allowed to bring that issue up because it's generic. It affects more than one reactor, and so the issues were never heard. Oh, uh, my gosh. Wow. So, well... Obviously, there's a lot of information that needs to be shared and put out, and I'm certainly going to work through this channel and others that I have to get it out there. But, Michael, just I'm sorry, we have to end the questioning here, but just one final thing. What can we do to support you in your work at NIRS? Well, I think the best thing to do, uh, well, two things. If you're with an organization, make sure that we know about you. Uh, so that we can provide the help you need. Uh, but if you're an individual, uh, I think the best thing to do is to join our alert list and take advantage of uh, the ability to you know, contact your elected officials or write comments to the NRC or uh, you know, do any of the numbers of different types of things we do through that because you know, it, it really is people power. We don't have the money or resources of the nuclear industry. You know, we, we can't spend $650 million over the next 10 years, you know, to pursue our agenda because we don't have it. Uh, what we have that they don't have is people power. Mm -hmm. And the more people we have that are uh, active and staying active, uh, the better it is. And it's very important uh to be persistent. So isn't it not good enough to send you know, one letter to your Congress member a year? Uh, you know, we want to see people you know, getting in uh, one or two letters a month because the Congress members are hearing from the nuclear industry daily. Uh, they have a lot of lobbyists. They walk around the halls of Congress and, and meet with people. There's, you know, they, they're seeing nuclear industry people every day. So they need to be hearing, you know, from our side every day. That's, that's well, the, activism is the most important thing. 
Michael, we'll do what we can to support you from here, and I look forward to having you back as a guest because it's clear that your information base is extensive beyond anything we can imagine at this point, and this is all information that we're going to be needing as we move forward. So thank you very much, uh, Michael Marriott, the Executive Director and Chief Spokesperson for NIRS, and uh, you can visit the organization online and learn more about them at nirs.org. Michael, thank you very much. I look forward to meeting you sometime soon. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. There's still more news and some holistic information coming up, so bear with me while I bring you up to date on a few other aspects in the world. Uh, Going back to Japan, just a few short things, and that is on July 29th, last week, um, TEPCO announced that they are going to uh, sample the air inside of the troubled reactors to measure the amount of radioactive substance and the number of radioactive substances that are in the air. This is intended to obtain accurate data on what kind of radioactivity is being released and in one quantity. July 29th, and this all started on March 11th. You think they've waited long enough to figure it out? And Hiroshima University, very interesting, is um, beginning to study low-level exposure to radiation. They're launching a study on the health impact of this kind of exposure. The university has set up a committee of about 40 researchers to apply their knowledge to support people affected by the Fukushima nuclear accident. The university has been providing medical care to atomic bomb survivors. The university says that when cumulative exposure reaches 100 millisieverts, that's the radiation measurement, 100 millisieverts, the chances of developing cancer are said to rise by 0.5%. Okay, I believe that 1,000 millisieverts equals one sievert. And earlier in this recording, in this podcast, I reported that in Japan, TEPCO now says that it has found areas around the nuclear reactors which are at 10 sieverts. So I don't know what the math is there on the exponential growth of uh, likelihood of getting cancer, but it seems like it's high, and it may be um, it may be more than uh, just mathematical. It might be exponential. If, if people could hit uh, the star six to mute yourself, I'm getting a little bit of a phone ring in the background here. Thank you. Um, Fort Calhoun, the nuclear power plant is going to wait to reopen, isn't that good news? Because the officials plan an inspection, but they cannot inspect until after the waters recede. Now, my connection at the uh, Omaha Public Power District uh, informed me today that the water level around the plant is down to 1,005.6 feet above sea level. The nuclear plant, of course, is built at 1,004 feet above sea level. So the floodwaters are still higher than the plant. They're being kept back by a berm, by the eight-foot inflatable berm that that deflated at one point. Um, But the nuclear plant is still an island. And um, there's still a no-fly zone over it as well, which is curious because it's not like there are media helicopters up there trying to get uh, a picture of what's going on, risking collisions with each other, which was their excuse way back in the beginning. Now, this is very interesting. Um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission met with Omaha Public Power District officials to discuss what steps will be needed before the plant can reopen. 
and they all emphasized safety throughout the public meeting. And uh, Omaha Power's chief nuclear officer, a man named Dave Bannister, said, regardless of the river level, we will not restart the plant until it is safe to do so. How about never? I think never would be the right time to restart that nuclear reactor. Once they're turned off, let's keep them off. Now, here's something. Um, I pay close attention to anecdotal postings um, on a lot of the sites that I check to get the information. A lot of which, much of this is based on newspaper reports that have been showing up around the globe. But when people comment underneath there, I like to read my way through and just see what information is being bounced back and forth. And this was a post as of today, August 2nd, on ENE News, Energy News. And uh, a person who posts as Magia, M-A-J-I-A, stated, last night, meaning August 1st, Des Moines radiation was 318 beta, which is over 10 times normal background radiation. Someone who posted on this woman's blog on these high levels said she saw the beta go up to 490 yesterday, meaning the first. Now, here's the point. Fort Calhoun, the nuclear power plant, is immediately due east of Des Moines. And Des Moines is showing a spike in background radiation. Now, this is anecdotal. This is narrative. This is just people talking among each other. I cannot imagine any reason why somebody would want to make this up. And it points to the growing network of citizen activists with Geiger counters and other equipment who are taking their own readings and feeding them into some central data places. Um, I'll see if there's any further information on this and try and get that to you next week. Here's some news out of Alabama. Um, Tennessee Valley Authority said on last Wednesday, July 27th, that in the wake of the tornadoes that went through the area on April 27th, only 12 of the Browns Ferry nuclear plants required 100 emergency sirens worked after the tornadoes. That's only 12 out of 100. The same power loss that left 88 sirens useless also, not unexpectedly, caused problems at the nuclear plant. All three reactors shut down automatically on April 27th. Because of the distraction of reactor personnel, yeah, I'd be distracted if a reactor shut down on me too, according to a report the Tennessee Valley Authority filed this month with the NRC, water levels dropped at the Unit 1 reactor when the water boiled off faster than it was replaced. The cooling systems that control the temperature of the reactors and spent fuel rods stopped working on April 28th for 47 minutes, and then again on May 2nd for 57 minutes, and then on May 12th for 40 minutes. So that means that the cooling systems for reactors and spent fuel rods at the Alabama nuke plant stopped working three times over a 16-day period. Also, shortly after the tornadoes came within seven miles of the plant, a valve failed, a diesel-driven generator for the security station failed, a diesel-driven fire pump failed, and the plant lost power to the chemical lab. And during many of these incidents, the emergency sirens were without power, so there was no way to warn people. And as an excuse for all of this, uh, Eddie Hicks, the director of Morgan County Emergency Management Agency, said, you've got to understand that the TVA system is maybe 30 years old. The technology changed. We want the battery backup on the newer system, but the newer system is not there. Anybody who thinks that nukes are safe, 
in the long run, um, it's a delusion, and it's fed by all of the propaganda that's being put out by the nuclear industry. Meanwhile, Germany's got some good news. Germany has the perfect way to get rid of their nuclear waste. Because of the agreement under which they started their nuclear plants, which, by the way, Germany has now voted to be nuclear-free, and by 2022, uh, they will be so mandated by law. But uh, Germany got, gets rid of its nuclear waste because the first ship to, shipment of their radioactive waste was exported from Germany to Tennessee, where it's expected to arrive in Oak Ridge in December or January. Isn't that just a perfect way for them to get rid of their waste? Now, I always like to include some holistic and healing information on the call. This comes from uh, Arnie Gunderson of fairwinds.com, F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S.com. Um, Arnie was a someone who worked within the nuclear industry for well over 30 years, and now he's posting some of the most um, informative and thorough reports that are showing up on video. Um, uh, he's on YouTube. You can also check fairwinds.com. But he was ta- he's been talking about hot particles, which are the plutonium particles that were nanoized when the Fukushima number three exploded and have been floating around in the atmosphere and coming to land all over the place, including all over the uh, west coast of the United States. So he has a protocol for protecting us from hot particles, especially in the summer. And this came by way of a citizen activist named Kim Roberson, who posted on nuclearfreeplanet.org. Her post is on a blog, and it's called Silent Spring Meets the Long Hot Summer. It's an excellent, excellent report. This is what Arnie had to say, and I'm quoting it from her posting on the blog, that we need to keep our windows closed during the summer. This is to protect from the hot particles. Change air conditioning filters in homes and in cars regularly. Use HEPA floor filters continuously. I think what's meant there is HEPA vacuums, uh, which will filter the air and, and trap the dust so it's not stirred up by vacuuming. Arnie also recommends wet dusting and mopping as opposed to dry to avoid spreading possible heart, heart particulates. Uh, we don't want to see those little motes of dust floating in the air. Take your shoes off at the door and leave them behind because that helps to avoid bringing the outdoors inside. To protect water, there are reverse osmosis and carbon filtration water systems available, and using a combination of both has been said to be the best way to purify water, although now it's widely debatable how much radiation such filtration will actually remove. Uh, That's Arnie's portion. Again, uh, Kim Roberson did an extensive, extensive blog post where she summarizes many of the points that we've been covering on Nuclear Hot Seat since the beginning. It is well worth the read. You can find her on nuclearfreeplanet.org, and I will post that link on the site for Nuclear Hot Seat. And finally, this thought by Chris Busby who is a visiting professor at the University of Ulster's School of Biomedical Sciences. Uh, He recently, this was posted last week, he recently visited Fukushima Prefecture to provide information on health risks, which has not been forthcoming from the Japanese government. I'll have more on that next week. But what he said is, quote, it's all invisible. The trees are still trees. People are shopping. The birds are singing and dogs are walking in the street. When you bring out the machines, meaning the Geiger counters, 
you can see everything is sparkling. And everyone is being bitten by invisible snakes that will eventually kill them. Invisible snakes. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2011, day 144 for each of three melted-down nuclear reactors in Fukushima Prefecture in Japan. That means there have been 432 nuclear leak days since Fukushima began on March 11th, and unfortunately, it ain't over yet. Now, you can find Nuclear Hot Seat and links to previous programs by going on Facebook and searching under Nuclear Hot Seat. I do have a bit of good news. The website has just been provided for me, but it's a shell. So now I have to figure out how to upload my copy. I can't help it. I'm a boomer Luddite. Um, hopefully, I will have this up and running by next week's show, and then we will have a full archive of the previous show so you can go back and listen. We've had some great, great interviews. So for now, this is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. You can contact me at info at writeyourbrainsout.com or through Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook. And I need to remind you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Don't go back to sleep. Thank you so much for being on this call. Be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock Pacific. I'll be here. I hope you will, too. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye.